0: Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So good to have you with us today. The State Department of Human Rights and the City of Minneapolis. Recently reached an agreement on how to overhaul the Minneapolis Police Department. A lot of hope is riding on this new legally binding settlement. It marks the first time in Minnesota that a court will enforce specific changes in police operations. But will these new requirements be enough to truly improve the way Minneapolis police officers interact with the people they serve? The settlement was approved late last month and aims to reset the culture of the department after the murder of George Floyd in May of 2020. It follows the state's investigation into the police department that found a pattern of racist behavior. The agreement covers a wide range of procedures from traffic stops to how officers use force. For example, officers will no longer be allowed to pull over a driver for Only a a broken taillight or stop and frisk someone just because they smell of marijuana. So this hour, I'm talking about this written agreement and whether it will usher in real change. And I definitely want to hear from you, too. The phone lines are open. You can call us. Do you think this agreement between the state and the city will improve how Minneapolis police officers interact with the public? Will it be effective in addressing concerns of police misconduct raised by the public, especially by communities of color? Call us at 651-227-6000. Again, that number is 651-227-6000. You can also call 800 242 2828. Let me introduce my guest. Rebecca Lucero is here. Rebecca is the Commissioner of the Minnesota Department of Human Rights, which investigated the Minneapolis Police Department and negotiated the new agreement with the city of Minneapolis. Commissioner Lucero, welcome back to the program.
1: Good morning. Thank you so much for having me today.
0: We also have Yuhuru Williams with us, a professor of history and Founding director of the Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul. He's working on a public history project that explores the history of policing in the Twin Cities. It's called Overpoliced and Underprotected in MSP. He was also invited to participate in sessions last summer where community members shared input for this new agreement. Good morning to you, Yuhiro.
2: Good morning. Good to see you.
0: And also in the studio with us is Giovanni Vallez. Valise.: yes? Uh, and this past January, Gio, as he is known, retired from the Minneapolis Police Department after 30 years. Gio rose from being a big cop to become the first immigrant to serve as a lieutenant in the MPD. And most recently, he was commander of the Special Crimes Investigation Division. Hi, Gio.
3: Uh, good morning, Angela. Thank you for having me. I said to you, retirement looks good on you. Thank you. Yes, it does. I
0: wish people could see you. Okay. Well, uh, let's start with you, Commissioner. For those who question, you know, why this effort to change the way police officers in Minneapolis do their jobs is necessary, what do you say to them?
1: Sure. I say that um, we conducted a thorough investigation um, where we looked at uh, 10 years of uh, data um, um police camera video, um, training records, everything, to see what was going on in Minneapolis. And looking over that, we found that there's a pattern or practice of race discrimination in violation of the uh, Minnesota Human Rights Act. Um, When we find violations of the Minnesota Human Rights Act, we move to make sure that we can create systemic change across the board, and we want to make sure that those changes stick in place overall. Um, So this is just a snapshot of this period of time after our thorough investigation, but I know that Dr. Williams can talk about Mm -hmm. a more comprehensive um, approach that looks longer than that, too. And when you say found a pattern, that's saying not isolated incidents uh, repeated over years. That's correct. It isn't about a single incident or a single officer. We're really looking across the board organizational culture of flawed trainings, deficient accountability systems, and a lack of collective, sustained action by city and MPD leaders to change the organizational culture over time and over and over and over again. And so, uh, Yuhuru,
0: how do you describe um, the significance of what is now in place in this written agreement? Uh, why why is this historic?
2: I think it's an incredibly historic, number one, because this is the first time that you have such an agreement between the city of Minneapolis and the Minnesota Department of Human Rights. So that's a major change in and of itself. The fact that it's judicially enforceable, that it'll have metrics that um, ultimately will hold police accountable. And this is what we've heard from community um, uh, for years, uh, for generations that there is no accountability, that communities of color in particular feel over-policed. We can go back to, I mean, I love that Commissioner Lucero talked about this, not just being a response to George Floyd. There have been other George Floyd moments in our history, in Minneapolis history. We can go back to 1975 when there was a shooting of a 13-year-old boy named James Jones. That was the George Floyd moment of that period. Uh, 1971, 1967, 1986. And I could tick off names that would be familiar to some people in this community. And so they know what that lack of accountability feels like, the echoes of that. Mm. Um, Today, what we hope is that people will read this agreement and say, well, here are some concrete measures that are being put in place to change the training that are judicially enforceable, and that give us a sense that the department is making real change, but that the community is part of that change making." And Commissioner, as we look at the
0: findings, the, the, I think the headline that stood out to me was the, the fact that black Minnesotans were more likely to be treated aggressively by police officers and almost twice as likely to be pulled over and searched while driving compared to white um, citizens in similar circumstances. Again, a, a pattern of racial discrimination.
1: Yeah, that's right. In every enforcement activity, whether it's stops, searches, arrests, use of force, online enforcement activity, you're seeing that race-based policing um, um, Discrimination occurring all over the place. And so you need a comprehensive response to that from top to bottom. And really importantly, you need for that to persist over time. And so, as, as indicated, what's incredibly important here, and unlike any previous effort to improve public safety in Minneapolis, this agreement can only be terminated by the court, and it can only be terminated when the city and MPD have reached full, effective, and sustained compliance with the terms of this agreement. Because, of course, over the terms of history here in Minneapolis, there have been lots of efforts um, to make changes, but they are—they do—they are not—they. Do, they They do not last Um, the city walks away from those um, for a variety of reasons. So people will cite to the early 2000s when the DOJ was here Mm -hmm. and there was a mediated agreement and they say, what's different about this? What's different about this is that the city cannot walk away. They talk about the DOJ being here in 2015, 2016 um, and saying, what's different about this? The city cannot walk away. They must do this. There is clear timelines and prioritization. There's independent oversight with a team that provides support and monitoring of the progress. Um, And so this provides that sustained work over time. Gio, you served uh, 30 years with the
0: Minneapolis Police Department, recently retired. I'm glad you're here because I, I feel like we often don't hear from officers themselves. We talk about them a lot. What do you make of the um, the human rights investigations' findings that there was this pattern of racial discrimination in the department?
3: Thank you, Angela. And Angela, I just want to make it clear that I'm not here to vilify the Minneapolis Police Department. I'm not here to vilify the police profession. I spent 30 years, and I remember every single day that I went to work. And I want to tell you that I worked with some of the finest men and women, people who believe in transformation, uh, people who believe in humanity. People who believe in the framework of treating people with dignity, respect, giving them a voice. However, there are some serious gaps in this organization. And I want to to go back and just tell you, which other profession, besides being a police officer, would allow a man or woman to stop you in the street, to seize you, to take away your liberty, to rush you, or take away your life? And if we are to have police safety officers who has tremendous amount of powers. We are to provide him professionalism. We need to bring this to the next level. We need to have some sense of um, oversight over these individuals. And we need to continue working in community relations, building trust, improving relationships. I want to say that the settlement agreement, based on my views of 30 years, based in my past two years, most of the officers are welcoming this. Most also, of the officers
0: welcome they this? They welcome this.
3: Because? My, my, so my conversations with officers, they are tired. They're tired of officers who have been harming the community and not being held accountable. Mm-hmm. And uh, the secrecy, the secrecy of uh, this culture of secrecy. And just let me go back and Angela say that police culture, culture is good in organizations. We have traditions in, uh, in our police culture, but there is there's also negative culture secrets uh not to tell another cops if you report misconduct you are not seen as one of us the us versus them and when I, when i say them i'm referring to communities we do need police officers but we need professional police officers officers who are going to treat communities with dignity and respect go ahead angel okay?
0: so bad behavior is happening right i mean this is these are the finer a pattern of of bad behavior do you think this is going to uh prohibit people or officers from, from making bad choices? Will they care and, and actually think about consequences in a way that, that they have not in the past?
3: And I want to go back to uh <clears throat> Professor Williams mentioned that we have seen uh, consent decrees um, from the 1935s, from the rise of Harlan, L.A., uh, but this is the first time in history in the, M- the city of Minneapolis, where We have a settlement agreement that has been signed by court uh, where MPD working in conjunction with many stakeholders, they're going to have to follow this process, whether this take a month or ten, 20 years. and it will have it has already had an impact before I left, I saw the number expediting working quickly on expediting and looking at policies, policies that will look into uh, officers and supervisors failing to hold all the officers accountable, the duty to intervene, the duty to, reform, uh, to report misconduct, the duty to report excessive use of force. I have never seen this before. Uh, two months before I left, we had a, we had a training and duty to intervene. And most of this type of training, most of this uh, we call reform training, transformation training. Um, officers will attend the training, listen to the training, but this is the first time I heard Officers from a new, from a younger generation, upset at the lack of compassion, upset at police misconduct. Uh, there was actually conversation happening. They're upset at the type of uh, contradictory policies and guidelines that we receive. Mm. The settlement agreements point out to clear steps by steps by steps.
0: And commissioner, are you optimistic that now that we will see more officers um, and and supervisors reporting? behavior that is racist or illegal.
1: Yeah, I I really want to echo a lot of what um, Gio just talked about there because it was really important throughout this entire process, both during our investigation and then um, as we were um, negotiating before we started negotiating, that we heard directly from officers themselves. Um, and this court enforceable agreement contains many provisions that is based directly on what officers shared on what they needed to do to be successful at their job, and none of it is going to be surprising. It is what I also need. To be successful at my job and what all employees need to be successful at their job. Officers said they want and need clear policies, that they want and need better training. They shared repeatedly that uh, long and confusing policies do not set them up for success. And they set communities up for failure as well. They want to be trained on those policies with hands-on training so that they know in those stressful moments how to apply those. Um, those. And then, And they want better support. And that includes Everything from comprehensive health and wellness programs to having techn- technological systems that interface or talk to each other. All of these things set a culture and a system up that allows for um, more accountability and more support across the board. It is all of these things that have to lift at the same time. And that's why this, um, uh, this consent decree is so important because it does, it requires all of these pieces to lift. Can, Can I just add very quickly to that? I
2: think this is also about culture, and I appreciate Gio mentioning that, because within the culture of the Minneapolis police, there really hasn't been any incentive for officers to behave differently. And mm. so when we think about when Geo comes onto the force in the 1990s, um, it really resembles what Tony Boza, former uh, police chief in the 1980s, described as a Patorian guard. Insular, there's no reason for officers to behave in ways that are consistent with what the public wants, because ultimately... They're their own kind of force and, and will. Um, they represent uh, – there, there's no accountability to the public. There's accountability to other officers. And if that culture is corrupt or if it's, mm-hmm. if it's not performing in a way that people wanted to, there's nothing there to kind of police that. Ultimately, the difference with this consent decree is it gets very granular about changing the culture so that those people who come in who want to see real reform are going to be able to look at those changes, those directives, and say – we do have a duty to report. If we're going to stop somebody, we have to have an after-action report that identifies why we stopped this person. If we're not going to cite them, then we have to indicate why we made the stop in the first place. And that moves us away from those kind of race-based categories of policing that often dominate in communities of color. Last but not least, and I think this is perhaps the most important part about that culture change is it takes it out of the purview of trying to do this by virtue of one person. So when Tony Boza comes in in 1980, the idea is that he as chief is going to be able to change the culture. That didn't mm-hmm. happen. It's more complex than that. In our contemporary moment, we think about bringing in Dr. Alexander or Chief O'Hara. That's not going to do it. You need this consent decree to push along that culture change as well to kind of create a new foundation for the way that officers engage with the public. I want to take some phone calls from
0: listeners as we talk about uh, an agreement between the city of Minneapolis and the state of Minnesota, uh, the Human Rights Department, to uh, improve how Minneapolis police officers interact with the public. Uh, Will it be effective in addressing concerns of police misconduct raised by uh, community members, particularly community members of colors, for decades? The phone lines are open. Call us at 651-227-6000, or you can call 800-242-2828 in Minneapolis. List. Let's talk to Paulette. Thank you, Paulette. Uh, what did you want to ask or share with us?
4: Good morning. Uh, first of all, I want to just ask to say the ex-police officer, what is, what's his name?
0: Uh, that's Gio. Yes.
4: Gio. What's, okay. Um, Gio, you're, you said better than I can say what I was going to say, but I'll say from a different perspective. In the late 70s in St. Louis, Missouri, I was the head of a police brutality committee for a civil rights organization. It was very, very hard to document because we had no phones or internet back then and when we did document it we became our persons became attacked by police officers so we worked hard and we compiled data but our finding was that we actually had to change who was hired as police how they were trained and how they were uh retained that the wrong people were police they they we can't just ask people who are you know being racist um Uh, to our classes, Stephen, to stop their bad behavior because there's something wrong in their head. So I want to know what this consent degree will do to change how we recruit, train, and retain uh, officers. And what do we do for that gap between high school and I think it's 26 or 27, whenever they can become cops? There's a long period of unemployment there or other employment. So does it address any of those
0: Mm. things? Thank you, Paulette. Uh, Commissioner Lucero, our uh, uh, call was asking about the training of officers as well as the recruitment of police officers. So is there anything in this agreement that gets at that?
1: Yeah, thank you. That's a, that's a great question. And there is, uh, ample provisions in this agreement regarding training, because that is first and foremost essential to making sure that non discriminatory constitutional policing, um, occurs, which will result in better public safety, um, from top to bottom. And so there is specific training that is detailed both by subject area, for instance, specific training around use of force, stop search and arrests. But then broadly speaking, there's just a lot more training about, um, uh, pieces around de-escalation and what that looks like. It also requires just a different way of doing training. So you can't just read somebody a document, um, verbatim and assume that they've been trained. I don't learn that way. You mm-hmm. don't learn that way. And officers don't learn that way. You have to do a- adult learning techniques, hands-on techniques. And so it is making sure that whoever comes in the door, wherever they are, you're meeting them where they are and you're, um, you're doing hands-on practices in real life scenarios to to make sure that they understand it. On top of that, officers and community members are part of developing the policies themselves. So they are deeply into uh, they have an opportunity to deeply understand them. So they they are uh, understanding how to apply those policies that they're a part of building. And so what do you see
0: uh, in this agreement you heard that deals with training and also recruitment that is is helpful to
2: you? Well, I think it does a couple of things that are important. Number one, it establishes a new foundation. If I'm looking to become a Minneapolis police officer and I understand that this department is under consent decree, then it sends a message that some of those behaviors that we associate with this race-based policing are no longer the standard for this department. Derek Chauvin doesn't become the kind of symbol of the Minneapolis police force or community complaints about uh, race-based policing don't become that standard. What becomes a standard is this consent decree, which lays out in, in great detail the way that officers have to engage with the public. The caller talked about, for example, being engaged in that work, I think, in another community. In the 1970s, mid-1970s, the Urban League conducted a study of the Minneapolis police, took data, interviews with community members. Nothing came of that. And when the police ended up uh, implementing new training, what they uh, opted for, despite the fact that people were asking for de-escalation techniques, was 75 hours of karate training, only 14 hours of transactional analysis, this consent decree means that we don't repeat um, the failures of 1974, 1975. It says de escalation is the model as far as practical, hands on training, humanizing people within the community, getting right, rid of policy practices and procedures that allow us to um, deny the humanity of those we are, uh, uh, sh- that we should be serving and protecting by following a model that says use force first and treat everyone as a suspect. And I think those are all important. And again, I think what's you know essential about this is that culture change, but you can't lead that culture change without a foundation that lays out what those basic rules are. Then you can start to kind of move people. You know, Some people say, well, we, we, we need mass retirements from the department in order to change the culture. That's not necessarily true. You need to establish a new set of rules, a new set of guidelines, have accountability around that. And then as those younger officers are coming in, that new generation or new class comes in, the expectations are different. That's critical. Again, something that Geo would not have experienced in the 1990s uh, coming onto the force. Gio, what are your thoughts
0: about the training that is needed, what's currently provided, and, and what changes we'll see in training uh, as a result of this agreement?
3: I'm very hopeful. Um, when I first read the settlement agreement, I was Googling. I was looking. I was searching for cultural competency. And I think page 61 talks about cultural competency. Bringing members of different diverse communities, LGBT, immigrant communities, uh, different voices, different views. We had this this recommendations were given to us by community members in the past, but they were not implemented. Mm-hmm. Uh, community members were begging to bring free training, uh, hear our voices, let's share our knowledge.
0: Talk when we're not in crisis. Right, great that's point. A, right, Angela. that's a big deal. Like yes. you can actually receive yes. and listen.
3: Yeah, but this is nothing new. I mean, we look back uh, from a historical context. That Professor Williams talked about the 2015 Community Policing Framework put together by former President Barack Obama. Like the 21st Century talk about bringing this topic training, but was was never implemented. So I'm hopeful mm-hmm. that this court order, the settlement agreement, will force the leadership from the police department, community members to come together, implement this training.
0: Let's take another phone call uh, from a listener as we talk about the uh, agreement between the state and the city that will change the way Minneapolis police officers do their work. In Chaska, John's on the phone. Hi, John, what do you want to tell us?
5: Good morning. Yeah, Listening to your show, uh, I'm glad that it sounds like there's going to be an emphasis on uh, better training, sounds like there's an understanding that to really change things it's got to be a cultural change and and it sounds like it's understood that that's not something that's going to happen in a day um it'll happen with new hires and and starting from the ground up my my uh my concern is is that it sounds like that they're going to hand tight uh officers though from actually doing the job that they're you know they were hired to do example of, you know not not pulling somebody over for a taillight that's out or not being able to use uh, tear gas, for example, for crowd dispersal. And what concerns me is how is that going to grow, you know, into other areas where pretty soon police just aren't even able to do their job because of fear that's going to be perceived, you know, in some negative way, you know, getting pulled over for a taillight. Maybe we shouldn't, uh, you know, issue a ticket, but certainly a warning is a favor not only to Everybody else out there, but to that driver who may not have known that he's got a light out. But you know, now because of it, might be perceived as racist. Um, we better not do that. Um, or if you've got a riot situation, for example, and you want to use a non-lethal approach, you know, we can't even use tear gas now. It, you know, it's certainly better than using bullets or rubber bullets. All right, John, um, so uh, let let's worried, have the commissioner things, yeah. respond
0: to this. So some of the examples John yeah. is citing, uh, is are, are these examples uh, accurate, commissioner? Or what would you say about some of the, the interactions that are now limited?
1: Yeah, I really appreciate John's question because we really want officers to do their job and we want them to do it well. And doing their job and doing it well means policing in a lawful, non-discriminatory manner. And doing so actually leads to improved trust, legitimacy and pu- public safety across the board. And so want to make sure we're providing that clarity. So um, let me address um, chemical weapons, because I think there may have been uh, or sorry, chemical agents for crowd control. Uh, there may have been a little bit of confusion about that. So MPD can continue to use chemical irritants for crowd control or to disperse a crowd, but they must have permission from the police chief to do so. And that mm-hmm. was put in place um, through a temporary court order by uh, the Department of Human Rights um, days after um, George Floyd was murdered and the The point of this is look if we need to use um chemical um, agents. This is a serious situation. We need you to do it thoughtfully and with correct approval, which is basically the premise of all of these changes. If you're doing things, please do them correctly with correct oversight and approval. Um, um, when it comes to um, somebody who has a broken taillight, um, if I have a broken taillight, please let me know. Send me a letter in the mail. You have my address. Mm. So it is about the means of letting people know. And that is actually detailed um, in uh, this court enforceable agreement that there. Sh- they sh- you please do notify people. It's about how you're notifying people. So nothing in this court-enforceable agreement prohibits an officer from doing their job. They should rely on what's called, you know, reasonable articulatable suspicion or probable cause to enforce the law. Uh, please do. Please do your jobs. Please do it well. Please do so in a lawful, non-discriminatory manner. So, um, as we look at some of the specifics,
0: uh, Commissioner, when. Um their, their agreement covers when officers uh, can stop search and arrest people uh, when they're driving, when they're walking down the street. So why why are these searches a focus? What's happening or has been happening with search searches and stopping people that is an issue that needed to be addressed in detail?
1: Yeah, great question. So in our findings, what we did is we really looked at these similar situations. We compared these apples to apples, apples comparisons to see what's going on. And we found that even when comparing only similar traffic stops. So we controlled for things like geography and time of day. So those could not be the excuses or the reasons. And we found that MPD officers search Black community members or their vehicles during traffic stops almost twice as often compared to white individuals and their vehicles in those similar situations. And so race is the likely reason for that difference and you know the alleged smell of cannabis of marijuana is a justification that officers rely on to complete a search of people of color and so this is why we really want to make sure that we're addressing race based policing these are the moments where race based policing happens the most so let's look at this system and these policies and let's change that let's prevent that from happening and of course let's allow you to keep doing your job but let's make it happen in a lawful non discriminatory manner i just Cannot stress enough that when you are operating in a discriminatory manner, it affects legitimacy, it affects trust, it affects um, the ability to cooperate with community members, and that has tremendous consequences down the uh Um, for years that ripple across the board Because people
0: share their stories. So then this distrust uh, spreads throughout uh, families through generations because people have stories to tell. How would eliminating some of these routine traffic stops and some of these interactions that we've seen in, in the past, how will that improve racial bias in policing?
2: Well, I think we saw this uh, here in Minnesota when um, John Choi, Ramsey County, decided to end um, traffic stops for these kind of minor infractions because they actually make us less safe. They don't make people or communities more safe. And I want to concretize something that Commissioner Lucero shared related to the caller's um, question as well. This doesn't take away from police the ability to stop someone based on reasonable suspicion, what it does is take away these pretext stops, which were often motivated by racial bias, where the easy thing to say after the effect was, "Well, I stopped this person for the smell of cannabis or things that would be believable within the larger context of how people think about communities of color, black and indigenous people in particular. So what it does is says, if you're going to do this, you need to justify." that stop. You need to justify that search and you need to do that in a number of ways. Saying into your body camera before you stop someone why you're stopping them, providing an after after action report that requires the name and badge number of the officer who's conducting the stop and the name of the citizen who was stopped and making that available to the citizens um, afterward to review. Um, that provides the data that we need so we can, over time, have metrics around, has this improved? Are we still seeing two times the number of stops? And that's why consent decree is so, so important in that regard. Finally, in terms of um, this in racial bias, what you're trying to do is get to a point where in 1975, Arthur Cunningham, head of the NAACP here, made headlines nationally when he said, the Minneapolis police have declared war on blacks and Indians. And he said that not only because of the kind of violent encounters that were happening um, between police and communities of color, but because of race-based policing, that ultimately communities felt over-policed. So there's a lot of action and activity in terms of harassing people in these communities, stops for no reason, uh, searches, so on and so forth, but then not feeling protected in terms of communities' needs of their own safety. What communities want is safety. They want officers to use critical thinking in order to engage the public in a way that makes all of us more safe. We know that these ticky-tack stops don't do that. We go back to the case of Dante Wright, which of course is not Minneapolis in. Very easily mm-hmm. they could have um, taken down uh, Mr. Wright much later in a much safer way than what happened. And although people say it's a terrible accident that resulted in his killing, the re- reality is all of that was preventable. If we think about that differently and de-escalation is the model and thinking about um, the public safety in a way that begins with what is the best way to do this overall that makes everyone more safe, not less safe. Gio, what have you seen in your 30 years of experience uh, with the Minneapolis
0: Police Department as, as the challenge with traffic stops? Uh, so often traffic stops, um, you know, like uh, they, they go sideways. What What is the challenge with that?
3: Angela, I have done hundreds of traffic stops. Uh, I just finished my, I'm working in my doctoral dissertation, mm-hmm. so we went into the immigrant community
2: mm-hmm.
3: and we interviewed community members for uh, who had experienced interactions with Minneapolis police officers for the past 10 years. And what I learned was that the most common way they came into close contact with police was through traffic stops and they felt that those traffic stops were not legitimate. Mm-hmm. The f- they felt that race was a factor in stopping them. And something that Commissioner Lucero and Professor Williams have been mentioning the relationship was fractured, the lack of respect. Uh, they felt like, once again, they were being targeted because of who they were, what they looked like, how they sound. Uh, most traffic stops do not lead into finding bombs, weapons, violent criminals. It is dangerous when we do traffic stops. Absolutely. Something can happen. Uh, let me go back. About a month ago, my car was stolen. I live in Maple Grove. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was driving my car that was damaged, no license plate, to a mechanic. And I was tra- I was stopped by me- by a Maple Grove police officer. Young kid approached me very professionally. By the way, I was not dressed like this. Mm-hmm. Not in I was, a suit and Not in a suit and tie, no. And... Very professional, he says, sir, this is why I stop you. Um, I felt a sense of relief because, hey, I look different. I sound different, but I felt like the way he talked to me, I felt I could trust him. And we had a great conversation. He never asked me for my identification. He said, go right ahead. I'm I'm sorry, you're, you're having a bad day today. In contrast, during my conversations with members of the immigrant communities, a lack of respect the lack of language barrier play and role in how they will view cops in the future because of those vicarious conversations. They go back and they tell their family member, hey, Geo did this to me, and that person will tell somebody. So the image, the police legitimacy, uh will play will I mean will have a negative impact on the public.
0: But those those stories are real. So many people have, have been stopped. The interactions were negative, uh and they led to, you know, you know, bad consequences. So like is that something that is needed in this uh, agreement, uh, how to address it, and, and whether or not traffic stops even need to happen in the first place.
3: I'm happy that the settlement agreement addresses this. I was in charge of the traffic investigator unit. I remember when City Council asked a chief of police, I wanna see a report. We believe that there was impact impact disparate impact. I believe that MPD is stopping more block drivers. And quickly, I mean, I didn't need to hire an, an analyst. I saw that it was this for impact. However, this topic questions, this topic concerns are not really taken seriously.
1: Right, but it's documented, yeah, right? It's documented, yes.
0: Lucero, isn't that documented? Is that one of the findings,
1: like the frequency? Yeah, and, that is one of the findings, but I would stress that it's less about the, we, I don't want us to play whack a mole with, now we're going to, um, say that you can't do traffic stops. Now you we want to say you can't do chokeholds and neck restraints. Now we're just playing whack-a-mole and we're not solving the problem, which is really about the culture change that's necessary. It we could have all of those policies in place, but if there's a deep understanding and Um, 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 I'm sorry, practice where you understand the humanity and civil rights of community members, then it's not a problem that you're pulling somebody over to let them know, hey, it appears like your your tail light is out. The problem is that you don't see black, indigenous and other people of color as um, having humanity being worthy of existing. You see that inherent criminality to them, and then you treat them like that. And so it 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 ripples from there. Mm -hmm. That's the problem that we have to solve. And that can be from no-knock warrants on. We can't play whack-a-mole with the policies. We have to change the culture.
0: In Minneapolis, one of our listeners named Chuck is on the phone. Hi, Chuck. What did you want to ask or share?
6: Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for holding this discussion. Uh, I heard legitimacy and trust mentioned earlier on. And I have a question about legitimacy and trust in the process Typically, when legislative bodies vote on things, whether it's Congress or state legislatures or city councils, what they vote on, they make available to the public, the document that they're voting on. So that's so the public can provide input. Maybe they'd even hold public hearings on it. In this instance, though, the settlement agreement was ordered on without the document being made, the final document, the settlement agreement, being made available to the public the constituents of Minneapolis uh, in advance. Now, I don't know, maybe this, there's some state statute that made this uh, secret. Maybe the parties decided, the MDHR and the city of Minneapolis, that it should maybe be made secret. Okay, Chuck, let's, let's city, ask about the it. The citizens oh. had no input into the document. Okay, I, the don't true, Chuck, is, uh,
0: I don't think that's true, Chuck, because know. I believe, uh, Commissioner, wasn't there a series of listening sessions that you guys did, that there was some uh, input from the public? Uh, you've sort of talked about that this hour.
1: Yeah, uh, thank you so much. We really took very serious um, engagement, both with officers, as I've talked about before, and with community organizations and community leaders. I hosted a lot of ongoing conversations. And we also worked in partnership with the Minnesota Justice Research Center to host community events last summer, some of which Dr. Williams has talked about here. Um, So we, um, Minnesota Justice Research Center actually organized a total of 15 community engagement sessions in the summer of 2022. These were across Minneapolis with a specific focus for those most directed by race based policing. For instance, their first listening session was with formerly incarcerated community members. There was an incredible wealth of information all highlighted in a report on our website. Um, two pieces I'll mention today. First, humanity. So, community members repeatedly stressed in a variety of ways that they want MPD to move away from a culture of violence to a culture that prioritizes humanity, that prioritizes de-escalation, and has a more creative and expansive public safety approach. The second um, piece that I'll mention today is accountability, which I know we want to talk about. Community members shared that they want strong systems in place for accountability. They stress that strong accountability systems are essential to transparency transparency. And to building trust. We went into negotiations with pages and pages of valuable quotes, um, important priorities from community members. And as a result, this court enforceable agreement contains many provisions that are based on what community members shared. Right.
0: And you were part of some of these uh, meetings with community members as well. What was the point of that? What was the value of that?
2: I think it was tremendously valuable, particularly for me as a historian, because it was an opportunity to recover some of those stories. Uh, Gio and uh, Commissioner Lucero both spoke to this, but I want to emphasize this with this audience. Wounds produce narratives. So the only way that we can get at that data is to explore those narratives from community. And what we heard overwhelmingly are the points that Commissioner Lucero shared, but also this idea that communities of color want to be safe, too. They want to be policed by individuals who value their life, their safety in a way that moves away from this type of race-based policing. And ultimately, I think those engagements were very helpful, at least for the Minnesota Justice Research Center, because they were saying, we've got to talk to all stakeholders, this will not be seen as valid if we don't talk to officers and community formally incarcerated. We need to cast a wide net to get the best data input that we can and shaping us so we understand what this wound looks like um, in many different different places. And consistently what they heard, what we heard last summer um, from community in particular was humanity. I think that was the overwhelming um, thing that I took away from the sessions I participated in. People just wanted to be seen and valued as human beings. And they often felt in those interactions that wasn't happening. It could be something as simple. Geo gave an example. is honorifics. You pull somebody over and it doesn't begin with, do you know why I'm pulling you over today? It's excuse me, sir, or Mr., miss, calling people in a way that identifies and values them as a citizen and as a person. It's those little things sometimes that make all the difference in the way that people perceive how law enforcement is engaging with them. Uh, Commissioner, I want to talk about...
0: um... How this agreement will be enforced and who will enforce it. So it's a written agreement, but uh, in, in, in real time, uh, an officer for whatever reason or a supervisor doesn't comply with the rules. What happens?
1: Sure. So this is um, just to take a step back. This is supposed to address a systems problem here. So this is not about like that individual moment in time. So we're looking at a systems and we're trying to set the city of Minneapolis up for success. So first and foremost, one of the first things that will happen when this is entered into court is the city of Minneapolis will put out a request for proposals to hire a team that will monitor. This is an independent monitor and they will provide technical support to the city and MPD. They will review and approve the policies and training. They will engage with community members that will include evaluating the effectiveness of the changes being made. They will engage with officers. They will monitor the pro- progress. So they will look at some of those scenarios that you're talking about right there and see what's going on. Um, and they will provide regular public reports. We really want to set the city up for success here um also department of human rights will also be on the ground doing all that work alongside the monitor and then uh the the court enforcement
0: too right so if there is a sense that the monitors come back the rules are not being
1: follow, what happens? That That's right. I mean, so first and foremost, doing everything we can to prevent that from happening on the front end. That's the different. Most people think of courts and they think guilty or innocent. And that's the role right. of the court. That's not the role of the court here. The court here is ultimately to enforce the agreement and to, to terminate the agreement. But with all of the support of the monitor on the ground, the court will really be there to say, hey, this has gone way off the rails. We need to get this back on track. What are we doing here? Like I like to think of this as a performance improvement plan um, to say, mm. how are we getting this back on track to provide those priorities and such. Let's take another phone call from a listener in St. Paul.
0: Anne is on the phone. Good morning, Anne. Thank you for calling in. And what do you want to tell us or ask?
7: Oh, yeah. Hi. I Thanks so much for having me. I just wanted to comment um, and also ask a question. You know, I think that, you know, I had, I, I was at the, the George Floyd um, cleanup after, it was two days after George Floyd was murdered with my son and, he was he, My son was shot by a police officer, a Minneapolis police officer, in the face. He's had six surgeries, and he's blind in one eye. That same officer, two days later, shot another young man in the eye. Who was Are, you
0: with, with in? Are you talking with tear gas, Ann? Yes, about?
7: my okay. son was shot point blank with a tear gas launcher, um, and it shattered his face and his eyeball. And then two days later, the same officer shot another young man in the eye, and he lost his eye as well. So now my son is blind and this young man is lying. And I guess my point is, like, I love all of this initiative and these the changes that are going to be implemented. I'm a registered nurse, and I believe in, you know, nonviolence. My question is um, that officer has never been held accountable. Um, and I believe that there's probably a lot of officers that have done things like that in the Minneapolis Police Department that are violent, and I don't know if this initiative would change if there's still a lot of like Derek Chauvin's on the force. And so I guess my question is, is, if we don't have a good base of officers, I know there's some fantastic ones, of course, but if we don't have that good base and kind of lean out the bad ones, this is going to fail most likely because we have some people that tend to be violent on the force.
0: And, and I, I want to know more about the injuries to these young people. They are each blind in one eye,
7: my son, yeah, was shot in front of me um, by a police officer two days after George Floyd was killed. We were at a cleanup right. and with a tear gas launcher less than 12 feet away. Um, so it 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 ruptured his eyeball and broke his mm. cheekbone, his, mm. his um, nose, his face. He's had six surgeries. But is able um, and is officer, able
0: to see in in the other eye. So you
7: can see in the other right. eye only if mm. the blind eye is closed. it's, okay. it's so sad. Yeah, it's and so I, sad.
0: I I'm so sorry uh, that this oh, happened no, to these no, young people.
7: He, he's lucky to be alive. Definitely. Well, and, but I, I guess my point is is. That officer did it again two days later to a, another young man. I want to give um, our guests an
0: opportunity to talk about this before we leave. Uh, you know, people have horror stories. And mm-hmm. so as we think about moving forward and uh, trust and uh, what happens, uh, what can you say about that?
2: It's such a, and I'm, I'm sorry for Ann's experience as mm-hmm. well. I, I think back to 1989 when uh, Lillian Weiss and Lloyd Smalley were killed in an incident where the Minneapolis police used a tear of gas and um, a flash grenade, excuse me, and the home caught on fire. Uh, When we talk about accountability, there are those officers in the department who for a long time have had reputations for brutality. Derek Chauvin was one of them. What the consent decree does, hopefully, is make that an inhospitable place because of the rules that are put in place to prevent that type of behavior by saying you're not going to get away with it. We do want to caution people that, and this is important. Consent decrees take a long time to work. Oakland was under consent decree for 20 years. They're just coming off that. Mm-hmm. So we shouldn't expect results overnight. But and the you, idea is that ultimately you will see change. And you heard we just have a minute left here. Uh, the
0: Justice Department still we're waiting for the, the findings of that uh,
2: investigation uh, of the Minneapolis Police Department. When and what does that mean? Well, that one will be around. Uh, so the the constitutional policing, which means that that could be a potent one-two punch for the city of Minneapolis. Minnesota Human Rights Department focused on uh, race-based policing. Uh, The Department of Justice will focus on constitutional policing. You've got a new chief, a new commissioner of public safety, a new oversight review board. Um, This is the most that we've ever seen in the history of, Mm. of the state, in the history of the city. We have reason to be hopeful in this moment, but there's still a requirement for us as citizens to stay engaged, to stay involved. Read the mm-hmm. report. Go to these community meetings. Provide feedback. Right. You know, engage. Um, civic participation is critical. Uh, Unfortunately, we're out of time. And uh, so we need to continue this conversation
0: because I know all of you have much more to say, but I want to thank you, uh, our guests today and our callers as well. We've been talking to the uh, Commissioner of Human Rights for the Minnesota uh, Department of Human Rights, Rebecca Lacerro, Yohuru Williams, a professor of history and founding director of the Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas, as well as uh, Gio Valise, who retired this past January after 30 years with the Minneapolis Police Department. Thank you for being here today, Gio. This conversation was produced by... Maya Backstrom. Be safe, everybody, and we will talk again soon. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.